Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we are here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. And today we're going to be talking about transformational coaching, paradigms, and so much more with Dr. Keith Merritt. We're going to talk to him in just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click that button that connects us so you know exactly what is going on when someone comes on that wants to help you grow, become something more than you were before, you get that notification instantly. And lastly, tell a friend. Tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. Bring them here, midnightonearth.com. Okay, we're about to talk to Dr. Keith Marin, but we're going to read his bio. So here we go. Dr. Keith Marin is the founder and managing partner of Leadership Pathways, an organizational consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping organizations with bold visions achieve sustainable high performance and industry leadership. As an organization effectiveness and executive development consultant, he has more than 30 years of experience assisting executives and managers in business, government, and education. Dr. Keith Marin received his doctorate from Harvard University in 1985, where his studies spanned the fields of human and organization development. He has conducted research on the relationships between human development, managerial effectiveness, and high performance, and has published numerous professional journal articles. He is also the author of seven books on humans and organization, and he is here now, Dr. Keith Marin. Hello. Hello. Typo on everything. I'm right here. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. You are in Kentucky right now. I am. All right. Well, how is the weather out there? How are you feeling right now? Oh, it's br- the weather is brutally hot. It's um, Brutally? I, I grew up in New Jersey, which has similar weather, but not as hot. You know, the summers are hot and muggy. I live in uh, Centerfell, just north of uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, where it's warm, but rarely muggy. And this is brutal. I'm frankly melting, yeah. <laughs> I, I've lost 30 pounds just by sitting here outside. <laughs> hey, that's a great natural weight loss program. I Hopefully yeah. you have some air conditioning. Well, I'm well, glad you're here with us in the ethereal sense with people around the world, of course. So tell me about this book that you wrote, The Art of Transformational Coaching. This is your most recent book, and it's a guidebook for helping others to heal and transform. So what was the genesis of this book? What was the inspiration? Well, there's there's two or three. I've been working with 
leaders for 40 years now, not well beyond the 30 that you mentioned, um, helping them grow and develop and transform their their worldview, their consciousness, their, their way of leading. And I've been following uh, kind of informally a, a recipe that I developed for how to help people transform. And um, I, I just out of curiosity about three or four years ago, I looked up to see whether or not there were any books out there on paradigm around personal paradigms and how, how to change them. And it turns out in the coaching realm, there was only one, actually zero, um, about paradigms. There was one about transforming people as a coach. And in the business realm, I only one books that really speak to paradigms. And I was shocked. It, it just struck me, and I'm sure your, re- your listeners and you uh, might understand this, that the par- our paradigms shape how we think and how we act. And why isn't there more books out there? So here I am with uh, uh, an approach to helping people transform, driven by an understanding of paradigms and how they form, how to change them. And it, there wasn't anything out there. So I was I said, okay, 40 years of experience, I think I ought to put it out there. Oh, it's beautiful. It's a powerful thing. People need to know about how paradigms shape their lives. They literally control every aspect of their lives. And there are good paradigms and bad paradigms. But let's just, in a general sense, tell people what is a paradigm. Yeah, well, so usually the term is bantered around in in culture or in politics where, where we say, you know, those folks are driven by that paradigm or that culture is driven by a paradigm. It's not often talked about at a personal level, but it basically a paradigm, the term comes from Greek paradigma, which means a model or a pattern. And it refers to in any realm, whenever you use the word, it refers to a model that's guiding the behavior of a person or the behavior of a business or the behavior of a society. Um, That's what a paradigm is. So you could say, uh, the, uh, oh my goodness, the capitalistic system is a paradigm. You could say the communist system is a paradigm. You could say socialism is a paradigm. Uh, democ- uh, democracy is a paradigm for, for ruling human beings. And, and they're basically all models. Um, and one of the interesting things about paradigms is they tend to be self-sealing, meaning they are a set of beliefs, a set of assumptions, a set of strategies, a set of ways of being that all come together to produce an outcome. And when the outcome is produced, it supports the belief system. So they all kind of get entracted and stuck um, within, within the model. And the same is true of individuals. We operate with certain paradigms that guide us. And by their very nature, we're stuck within them unless we find a way to break free of them. And it's not so easy. So that's that's what a paradigm is. Um, I'm speaking very conceptually right now. We can talk very concretely in a little bit, but that's how I understand them. Of course. And it almost seems like an aggregated set of habits. And then those habits, that habit collection is then transferred culturally and individually through family lines and then through society. At the personal level, they're very much, they translate into habits. And once they form as a habit, and I think you've read some of the book, oh, yes. then it locks in place, just like all habits 
uh, we rinse and repeat those behaviors over time, we get comfortable with it, we almost, they become automatic. We don't even recognize what's underneath them and what's causing them. And so like a habit, eventually paradigms get locked in place. And that's part of why it's so hard to change them. So people want to grow, they want to change, but they don't understand in a general sense that they have these paradigm behaviors programmed into them that are limiting literally how they view themselves and how they view the reality around them. Absolutely. And it's often self-induced, but the person doesn't even know they created their own paradigm. <laughs> so they, they start er, er, often early on in life as a strategy to cope with something. And a young person un- makes a decision. They don't even know they made a decision, but that decision sets into motion the paradigm. So, you know, here let's get a little concrete. An example for me in my life is my parents were pretty um, harsh. And they, uh, they're very, very critical and very, very smart and had very, very high expectations of me. And I didn't get much love from them at all or, or much nurturing. And so some young part of me went, okay, I want love from my parents. I better get smart and I better study hard and I better work hard. And so I did. And that work hard drive determination set into motion a very foundational way than which I, I've been in my life. And I am pretty successful. I am pretty smart and I am pretty dedicated and I've got a lot of grit, but man, it's exhausting <laughs> to be that way. But it's set in motion early days from a decision I made that the only way I can get love from my parents is to be this way. So any paradigm is kind of like that. It, it's shaped often by the environment and the choices we make in in that environment to cope with that environment. And then it gets locked in place and rinse and repeated. And now I have standing in tense face. (laughs) Well, what about paradigms that come from outside sources like society, culture, religion, and also Also, just even uh, familial expectations, not even really your concrete you know, direct family paradigms, but even other outer family paradigms. What do you think about that? Well, you know, so certainly our family systems um, or the or the geographical culture, the geographical area in which we grow up, there are certain rules of the, the family culture or rules of the uh, geographical culture in which we live. And so, for example, I'm I'm Jewish by cultural heritage. I'm not a practicing Jew, but I'm cultural Jew. It's hard to be Jewish and not be a cultural Jew. And so there are certain rules of being in a Jewish family. One of those rules is you study hard. Um, One of those, another rule is you do good. You're supposed to be a good person. And and, and there are certain um, practices that Jews do, and most religions do, to be a good person. And there's another rule called you should feel guilty. If you don't do any of those things, and there's the uh, Jewish guilt. <laughs> and so I adopted just by being in that environment unconsciously, I looked around and I thought, oh, this is these are the rules for which you're supposed to live life. So I'm I'm now a educated uh, study do-gooder. Uh, and guilty as all heck when I don't do good. Um, when I make a mistake, I feel bad you know, at least I have, and all of those things 
or as you say, it's if it's in your environment, you adopt it. And there's a particular reason why you adopt it. That's kind of interesting. We can talk about it a little bit, but yeah. And then the other issue with the power of paradigms and how they can grip people is the fact that they are reinforced because there is some reward that comes out of participating in the paradigm and then, you know, oh, yeah. showing up on the polarity of success. Perhaps you could fail in that same paradigm, but if you're successful, you get a lot of reinforcement and then that paradigm is that much more ingrained. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm here in Kentucky, which I, it's interesting. I, 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 I was with my girlfriend, we were visiting the uh, coal mines of Eastern Kentucky, one of the mines that is famous in, in Harlan County. And, you know, I showed up there, uh, we showed up at a, to get a, 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 um, a tour of the mines. It's quite fascinating. And as soon as I arrived there and the guy who's our tour guy, who's got this deep, deep Southern Eastern Kentucky accent, because he's from there. He, 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 uh, he hears my girlfriend says Keith's from California. He says, Oh, that's a cultural shock, isn't it? And, and he, well, he said it in a deep draw. Y'all you're going to get a cultural shock, aren't you? <laughs> and, 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 and it's true that, that, that culture just, I'm not even sure what started this, but that culture shapes the, uh, him from Eastern Kentucky. I'm from, New Jersey, and then transplant to California, and 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 the culture around us develops those habits and those successes. So he, I know how I got to this. You asked about success. You know, in Eastern Kentucky, there are certain rules for success. First, you carry a gun, and you don't take bullshit from anybody, and you do the right thing by your family if you grow up in a coal mine, but you're stuck there. So you go in the coal mine, you work there as a father, you provide for your family. Once you get there, your job is to do that. You give a few pennies to your grandmother or your mother to help that poor person out. And that's the rule. And they reinforce it. The, the mothers and the women reinforce that behavior. They also, by the way, interestingly, honor the cruddy work that the guy is doing in the coal mines. They come home and wife says, thank you. The guy melts and drops in bed and then wakes up the next morning to go back in the coal mine for six days out of a week, 50 days, 50 weeks a year. But it's reinforced. They go, thank you. You did good. And we respect you. And interestingly, the men are very respected. Partly because they're good providers, even though they're in a hellhole. That's mind blowing because that reinforcement activates the reward centers in the brain and then you're getting that biochemical programming as well reinforcing yeah, the paradigm yeah and so all paradigms personal paradigms i like that and you and you can imagine why people live there it's it's real the coal mine is a hellhole yeah oh god i, I mean i can only imagine <laughs> yeah and, and, and why do they stay and do it a, they don't have many other options. B, they were enculturated to believe that this is the thing to do. Right. And and so they do it without question, rinse and repeat over time, and then they pass it on to their children. Um, and, and so it's really hard to break out of it. There are very few people that leave eastern Kentucky and leave the hellhole, uh, but some do. And then they go, you know, the, the, it, Plato, Plato's uh, parable of the cave is fascinatingly 
uh, instructive here. We we might get into it at some time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am familiar with that. But these paradigms, they show up in different ways. Waking up every day and brushing your teeth, that's a paradigm. You program yourself sort to say, yeah, I'm going to yeah, get yeah. up in the morning. I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to yeah. take a shower. And that itself is a good paradigm. It's a mode. It's a mechanism that's created by the mind, right? So what is the mind? Because it seems like in order to take control and transform these paradigms, the ones that aren't benefiting us, you have to understand first what the mind is. Yeah. Well, gosh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to dodge that question, you know, <laughs> just, just, just as if, if you said, so you talk about consciousness, what is consciousness? I'm going to go, I'm, let me dodge that. <laughs> there, you know, there, there, there are people far smarter than me. Oh, who, come who, on. Who, <laughs> I, I'm absolutely serious. Cause you know, some people say the mind is in the brain, but then the people who study consciousness point out and show how, consciousness is all over and the mind is not just in the brain and then of course there are many um, many people who study the gut and the gut is often referred to as the second brain right and so it's not just in the brain but what is the mind dear god you have an answer to that uh i don't but i do know that it is in a place that's outside of the material and it's even outside of emotion and the mechanisms of the brain. So yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I had an interesting conversation with somebody yesterday. I was explaining to them how the habits form and the synapses in the brain get fired in a certain pattern right. and the pattern gets repeated over and over again. That I can talk about. That's the biochemistry and the bioelectrical me- me- mechanics of the brain. That I understand, I think pretty well. But I then just had this thought how does a thought occur? Where the heck does it? Because it you can't point to some place in the brain and says there's the place for that thought. In fact, somebody could do damage to the that part of the brain, and the thought might occur from some other part because you hear somebody else saying something. Where does thought occur? Which is like asking the question, where does the mind occur? I don't know. Exactly. I just know that it's there. It's there. <laughs> It's here somewhere. It's there somewhere, but it seems like we have to rest in that place in order to unlearn and reprogram our paradigms. I think so. I could say I think I know how the mind works, but I don't know fully. I don't know any of us really can make sense of why it is that human beings have consciousness versus animals. Some people say animals have consciousness, so maybe they do. And why are we able to reason and and self-reflect, which is all part of healthy consciousness, and why others don't? Yeah, <laughs> That question is too big for me. It I'll, is I'll very heady. Up. But the thing is, is that we want to help people understand that these paradigms that may be programmed within us from generations back. It could be your grandmother's 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 behavior that has been carried over. We still have the power to change them. And there are modes and mechanisms and ways to grab a hold of those and shift those within ourselves. Absolutely. And that's, you know, the book, even though it was aimed that the art of transformational coaching is aimed for coaches. I we're writing a companion piece right now, me and a colleague, called the art of self-transformation. And whether you have a coach or not, if you understand the nature of how paradigms form, 
how they get locked in place and you are highly motivated to want to change a pattern in your life, if you understand those things and follow the seven-step process, you can change your patterns without a doubt. Just as the brain has plasticity, our paradigms have plasticity. But my job was to try to decode how paradigms form and get locked in place so that I can help people change their change their lives. Absolutely. And that's what this book details. I thought it was so amazing. Yes, it is a guidebook for coaches to go to the next level. These life coaches, they want to add another dimension into their coaching. Yes, that's what it's for. But... It also is a very detailed guide and reference in relation to how humans construct paradigms themselves and what we can do to avoid the ones that are hurting us. Because I do want to point out that paradigms are almost like a neutral energy. They're like a force that can be used for good or for bad, depending on how they're constructed and put in place. Well, I, I would, <laughs> you know, so I, I think I would say it differently. I think I, I get what you're saying. Um, so when you say good or bad, that's a value judgment. Oh, yes. I'm very sorry. In order right. to say this is good or this is bad, it's against some goal or set against some desire. So if, if I say, let's say I, I, uh, uh, have a pattern where, um, as soon as I'm in a relationship early days, I get scared and I run away from commitment you know, which is some people have that <laughs> I'm afraid of commitment pattern. Sure. Right. And the only reason why you call that bad is because if somebody actually wants to have an enduring relationship, that pattern is problematic. Right. However, so, so it's, it's the goal called I want to be in a committed relationship makes that paradigm bad. If somebody doesn't want to be in a commitment uh, in a enduring relationship and is happy to, be free and fool around and do anything that that lack of commitment paradigm is not a problem at all it's not bad so so uh, bad right. is relative to goal and um usually par uh, that that's one thought i want to offer there, there's no such thing as a bad paradigm it's only bad if we have a goal that we're not meeting from it so i think i'm making Yes, absolutely. Would you say then helpful or hurtful? They're either helping us grow helpful or hurtful against something that I want. Right. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and they're either they helping are, us to grow or causing us to reduce. Helping us to achieve something. Yeah, like that. That's right. Okay, that's. About I would also I mean. say that all paradigms, in some sense, serve something. They exist because they serve something. We'll take that mythical person who's who's uh, con uh, commitment avoidant. That their commitment avoidant is serving something for them. It's serving freedom. It's serving comfort. It may be that they have some terrible fear that if they got committed, they would lose something. And so this is the way of avoiding that which they're afraid they're going to lose. And so when you study your own paradigm or study any paradigm, it's important to just look for how has it served and now it's no longer serving the way it served. So it uh, serves something for some time, but now it is a problem because I do want to be in an enduring relationship. And so that very pattern that served in one way no longer serves. That's a healthy way of looking at the, uh, 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 the, 
the paradigm in my mind versus I'm bad, I'm wrong, paradigm bad, I should be, I shouldn't be. And, and usually we try to judge the paradigm rather than understand it. Right. It makes it very gray. So and it allows for a lot of variables and flexibility with the energy of the paradigm. And grace with oneself. Okay, I have this pattern. Why does it exist? When did it exist? How did it form? What did it serve? When did it start? Those questions give us grace. And the more grace we have with our paradigm, the more we can unlock it and loosen our, its grip. If we judge it, we say bad, all bad, shouldn't have it. We're now tight. We're now in judgment with ourselves. And some part of us goes, I'm not going to examine this anymore because it's painful, because it's bad. And part of how they get locked in place is we deem our paradigms or our patterns as bad. That's, yeah, so I'm it, sure that's a very common mechanism that humans use in those situations because yes, of all bad, all bad or all good. Yes. The value judgments that are placed on us by society and culture, they do tend to funnel things that way. But like you said, if you can find the good in any situation and make that the energy of that paradigm shift based on the situation, then it changes everything. Yep. And one thing you pointed out in your book, which I thought was very interesting, this was right at the beginning, you said that the book is designed to offer the keys to truly helping others solve their problems and the solution endures. I thought that was an incredible point because very many people, they go to therapy, they go through workshops, they do various treatments to relieve something, emotional, spiritual, trauma, but the solution doesn't stick for whatever reason it didn't work for them. But in this situation, this book is designed to help people fix the situation in a way or correct the energy. So the solution endures. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, it's, uh, you, you, you read enough to, to uh, talked about, we, we live in a quick fix society where, you know, dieting is an example. Give me the pill that I take <laughs> and, and wouldn't that be lovely if I could just pop a pill and solve just about anything? Uh, give me the solution to being a committed partner and let me do that as quick as I can so that I can get that woman or man or whomever I'm wanting. Um, you know, the, the quick, quick, quick fix society is it's all over us. It's uh, in our commercials and do it the easy way. Yeah. And, if we could do it quick and easy, uh, my experience or my observation is quick and easy rarely endures. So in, in dieting, which is the uh, typical example, people who diet, they go back, bounce up and down in those diets. They diet for a while. It works for a while. Uh, but then it doesn't work, and then they gain the weight back. And then they go on another diet, then lose it, and they gain it back. It's a flip-flopping uh and the reason why it doesn't endure is it's whoever's doing it is looking for that quick solution and not examining the underlying paradigm that creates the 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 the, the lack of health. Right. And they don't address it as a health problem. They address it as a weight problem. When you address it as a health problem, you got to ask and ask the question, am I living in a healthy way? And if not, what's in the way of me doing that? Now you're unraveling the tentacles of the paradigm and you're getting to the deeper level. And there you have a chance, I believe. And I don't, you know, I'm not against trying a diet. If you want to do a diet, go for it. But I'm saying almost all changes that we make 
we tend to do it in a quick fix, easy way, or we try to, and it won't endure until you find out, until you look at it as a paradigm, until you understand the nature of that paradigm and how it kind of locked in place. I sometimes refer to as these tentacles that exist in our psyche and in our bodies. And then you, you, you search for what's the key to unlock it. When you find that key, uh, uh, change happens very naturally and much more easily, uh, not, not so easily, much more elegantly. And it's slow. And if it's slow and you found the paradigm that's locking it and you've unlocked that paradigm, it will likely more likely endure. And that, and that is very much, I mean, I, I could speak volumes on this. Well, I'm sure with that example too, it explains why so many people go on these intense weight loss regimens. And then no matter what happens, they lose the weight, they gain it back because it's a paradigm problem. You're saying. I think it is. I, well, most often it is. Maybe there's a metabolism problem that somebody finds a pill that that somehow uh, right. rectifies a, a a a problem in their body. But you know, the whole all of Western medicine and the pharmaceutical industry of which Western medicine is a of which a, it is a part of Western medicine. That's all a paradigm. That is a huge paradigm in our society. And part of the reason why we have eroding health over decades and decades is because we are locked in that paradigm and we don't even realize we're locked in it. Well, I think some of those paradigms are put in place on purpose. They're reinforced at least by people profiting from them. And when you're talking about the medical Western medical paradigm, a lot of that has to do with the money that's being extracted from the masses, I believe. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it is, and I'll, I'll probably get fired from one of my clients by 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 agreeing with you. <laughs> I, I, I've worked with some some medical companies, but you know, it's interesting. The people that I know in at Pfizer, for example, or or one of my first clients was Smith Klein French. Uh, they're now Smith Klein Betcham or something like that, um, or, or Roach Smith Klein Roach. They've changed owners and over the years. But the people that I know there are not, they're not thinking, I just want to make a bunch of money and screw these people. That's not how they think about it. Right. And I know that a lot of people who are anti-business or anti-pharmacy or anti-Western medicine think that they are just money-hungry folks. The individuals that I know, and some of them are way at the top of the organization, that's not how I would characterize them. I would say they're trying to do good within a model that our whole society appreciates at some level and they're contributing to society and they're making a buck along the way. There is a point though, where it kind of looks a little too much, you know, when some, it looks too much. There are certain situations and when the profiteering is very obvious and they're withholding certain medications and we're not naming and, names, we're not naming companies specifically, but just again, in a general sense, it does happen. And that's what these creative people that end up in these positions have to work against. That's part of the model you're saying. Like they're, that's oh, not absolutely. their intention that they want to help people. They want to create these medicines and situations to help the human race. And then they're also dealing with mechanisms within the organization. They're almost like repelling that and they have to navigate that. 
I think so. I think that the, the you know the people in these pharmaceutical companies, as an example, there are some that for the almighty dollar they will do unethical things. They will hold information, withhold information from the public. That is reprehensible from my point of view. It is chasing after the almighty dollar to such an extreme, you know that 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 they do damage to the world. Right. I think a few of them may not admit they're doing it, but they are doing it. The vast majority, even folks in those companies, would not describe themselves or be that way. But there are certainly some that are uh, reprehensible, from my view. I don't work with those folks. I'm sure it's it, just like the human experience. It shows up in all polarities, all the, the best, the worst, and all points in between. There's just examples in that industry everywhere because it's a huge industry. And that industry and what we're talking about is healing. Your book is like that. We're talking about healing. Why is it as human souls, we come into this reality as humans, and it almost seems like we're pummeled right out of the gate, growing up as a human in like this raw consciousness type state. And then we get all of these paradigms programmed into us. And then we mature. And then we realize, my God, we have some terrible programming. We have to undo all that. Why talk about paradigms? Why is that set up that way for the well, human experience? It is. It is very interesting. I, I do have an answer to that. That that uh, it's it's a perspective that that has served me well in understanding paradigms and how they lock in place. So so uh, you may recall I talked about the brain waves, the the uh, electromagnetic. Uh, brain waves. So we're born with um, we're born with uh, our, our brain. The the electromagnetic wave pattern of the brain is very slow when we're born, and uh, I think it's measured in hertz, which is electrical impulses per yes. second. And when you're born, your brain is really slow. It's like it hasn't had to activate much when it's in the womb. And so it doesn't have to do much. It, you just sit there like a blob and take in whatever substance and you keep growing and you don't even know anything. Uh, uh, some people would say there's still consciousness there, but I don't think there's a lot of mind activity going on. Um, the brain is actually just starting to, to grow and develop. So you come out of the womb and the brain is slow as all get out. And People hypothesize there's no way of knowing if this is true, but there's probably it's probably true that the baby, when it comes out of the womb, everything looks really weird and strange. It's like this incredibly trippy experience. Absolutely. They have no way of understanding anything that's going on. They go from dark to light. Their eyes go, oh, my God, this is too much. And they... <laughs> They cry. I'd cry if that ever happened to me. It's 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 a jolt of overwhelming amount of sensory data coming at them all at once. That's partly why they're crying. It's get me back in the womb, dear God. <laughs> comfortable in there, and so you know, so so their brainwaves are slow. It's very psychedelic, weird, but little by little, they. Something happens. For example, I, they they start to figure out if I suck on this nipple, food comes. Yum! I'll do that again, and then I start to anticipate it, 
and look forward to it. And if I don't get it, I get a little upset and I send a message to the universe. I'm upset that the milk isn't coming. I'll cry. And then the milk comes. Okay. I start to figure out that works. And so programming is happening. I'm starting to make decisions as a little baby and I'm starting to make sense of the world around me. So my brain is speeding up. It's little by little, faster and faster. Interestingly, it keeps speeding up throughout my lifetime until I'm around 21 or 22 or 23 years old. And then it slows down for the rest of your life. So that speeding up process happens. I'll I'll say 21 or 22 or 23, they measure this thing. And one way you can understand this or remember it is, you know, brilliant mathematicians, they are at age 20 or 23, they're at their peak. Okay. They can compute all kinds of massive amounts of information, but starting at age 23 or 24, it slows down. And then when you get to be 30, you become a teacher, but no longer a brilliant mathematician. So, you know, all, almost all the peak brain capability is somewhere in the early 20s. All right, so go, let's go back to the question. Your brain is slowly speeding up over a 20-year period. Somewhere around age two to six, your brainwave, I think it was 0.5 to 2 hertzes, or maybe it's 2 to 6 hertzes. I can't remember exactly. But they call it the theta brain wave pattern. So you're at alpha, then you're at beta, then you're at theta. And the theta wave pattern, here's the interesting thing that answers your question to me. When you're getting hypnotized, if you ever get hypnotized, and you know, picture the proverbial person with the watch going back and forth, the watch is going back and forth, and you're saying you're getting sleepier and sleepier, or the the hypnotist slows down their voice, talks very calmly. You're getting sleepier and sleepier. What he or she is doing as a hypnotist is slowing your brain pattern down. Slowing it down to the exact point that you have when you're age two to six. And when it's slowed down to that point, the hypnotist goes, okay, cluck like a chicken, walk like a duck, uh, stop smoking, um, uh, remember the following thing before you go to bed. They make the suggestions, the hypnotist, when it's that slow, and you're most suggestible at that time because your brainwave is at the most suggestible brainwave pattern. And that's what they do to help you solve any of a number of things or cluck like a chicken and do funny things in front, on a TV. So the point is when you're age two to six, you are at that brainwave pattern. You're extraordinarily suggestible, but you don't know it. You're not reasoning, oh, I'm going to take this message that my mother gave me or that my father gave me or society around me gave me, and I'm going to consciously bring it into my thought process and I'm going to take it in and I will choose it. It's not that way at all. It happens automatically from age two to six. All that's going on around you then gets imprinted and you don't know it. That's the point. You don't know that it happened. Almost all of the paradigms that we have in place in our selves got formed at that age, and we didn't know it. So it's like we unconsciously made a decision to adopt it, and we couldn't do it any other way. 
This is why it's so hard to break away from the family culture, from the environment we lived in, from the rules of society around us, because they're deeply imprinted unconsciously. This is why somebody says, you know, they're 40 years old and they're now a parent. They go, oh, my God, I'm doing it exactly the way my mom did it. I decided I didn't want to do it, but I'm doing it exactly the same way because it's so deeply imprinted in us. That's why the paradigms are so strongly locked in place. Am I making sense? Yes, absolutely. Oh my God, that was incredible. Isn't that interesting? It's mind-blowing. It's absolutely, especially the hypnotist part, but it's just saying that during that time, you're literally your subconscious mind. Like you're a wrong you are, you are subconscious, your subconscious mind. mind. No, no babies or two or three-year-old says, I think I will think this way. And there's alternative <laughs> ways of thinking, but I'm going to think this way. They just do it. And mommy and daddy, because they're following the culture of the family, mommy and daddy goes, good boy, good girl. And so the kid gets juju, gets love, gets attention by copying the environment that the parents have defined as good. The parents never question it. Right. The grandparents didn't question it because they all kind of adopted it unconsciously. It takes a pretty big effort to go, wait a sec, I'm going to question this whole thing. But that's what it takes to break out of a pattern, a paradigm. So the, the first method of breaking out of the paradigm, it would seem then would be to identify it. And then yeah. once you identify the programming and the paradigm, then you can change it, right? Well, you have to identify it, then you got to question, right? But you, you, have, you have one. You, so the questioning is often, well, it used to work for me, but I'm not so sure it does anymore. You start to question it. And then sometimes it takes a certain degree of bravery to break out of the parent, your family pattern or your culture. So question it um, uh, and then uh, explore what will be an alternative way of seeing and being that would be a more healthy version of the person I want to be. And then you've got to for- reform that into a new habit. So there are, there are four or five steps to go through it in, in my what I call my recipe. Um, but once you get it, it's, it makes perfect sense. And then people can break free of their patterns and that, that's what we do. Yes. And I've it. often heard that one of the only ways to change a paradigm is the repetition of new information to just pummel your subconscious with the information that you would like to change about yourself and that repetition, whether it's reading something several times or listening to a recording or just doing an affirmation or a prayer, something to reinforce that over and over to then shift the paradigm because you're programming, you're using your conscious mind to program your subconscious mind. What do you think about that? Uh, it is, it is the prevailing strategy um this is why affirmations are people use affirmations but i know a lot of people that pummel themselves with the new message the new mantra the new affirmations that they want but they still remain stuck in their pattern so we we got to ask the question because i i get what you're saying but I think there's another strategy that's far more workable that includes that, but at a certain right time. So picture, picture person who says, uh, I want to, let's see, what would be good? I want to be uh, kind to people. And the reason I want to kind of people is I know I'm kind of ornery and a totally <laughs> ass person. 
and and I'm arrogant. And people are telling me that, and and I've I've lost some friends, and I'm upset because I lost my friends. And the world just doesn't get me, goddammit. All right, I'm going to do these affirmations. Be kind, be kind, be kind. But notice that the part of me that is doing the affirmations is the part that's upset with the world for not getting me and accepting me. So I'm already in a young part as I try to apply these affirmations. The key, instead of doing it that way, and most affirmations don't work because it's the young part that is doing it. They're trying to do a quick or you know easy approach to getting there. The alternative is far more profound and enduring in my estimation, and that is that you go, okay, I'm an arrogant son of a bitch. I'm going to own that that's true. I'm going to do a little bit of inner search to understand who in me needs to be that way. Who in me is that way? And what I'm going to do instead of getting rid of it and disregarding it is I'm going to honor that a part of me needed to be that way. And so I'm going to examine it enough that it loosens its grip on me. And then I'm going to find a wise part of me, a wise part of that that genuinely wants connection in life. And from that place, I'm going to be curious about how I can be inside that connective wise self. Now I'm not in dueling paradigms. I'm honoring my old paradigm and I'm wisely and lovingly adopting a new one. Now the affirmations stick. Yes. Now the practices that I do are natural because they're already coming from a wise part of me. And so instead of fighting a paradigm and, and, and getting into dueling paradigms between my affirmations and my old self, a far better strategy is to honor the self or honor the part that's doing it the way I did it, loosen its grip through the process that I talk about in the book, and then... The, the 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 strategies and the affirmations that I might want to rinse and repeat feel natural and wholesome and easy. And they're adding value to your life. They're actually doing Absolutely. And what then, they're describing. And then every now and then I, I'll bounce back to my old way. But when I bounce back, I won't be in judgment and I'll be curious about it. I'll go, oh, who in me needed to do it that way? Oh, I can see that part. Oh, that's that young part that was arrogant because my parents were this way. And I need, I developed a decision to be, you know, arrogant. And gosh, I understand that. And so I go to the person that I was arrogant with and I say, I'm so sorry. I I was arrogant and I, I know that part of me. Please forgive me. All of a sudden, here I am vulnerable in relationship with this person. I'm not using affirmations. I'm genuinely gracious with this person and gracious with myself. Affirmations are not needed. It's that I've shifted to a different place in myself. So affirmations without that process feel like I'm crowbarring myself to a new self. Sure. And this way doesn't, isn't crowbarring. No, it, it gets to, like you said earlier in the podcast, it gets to the root of the issue dealing with the core paradigms that are causing the reaction versus the dealing with pattern, the, the core thought process or the core uh, repetition that is causing the paradigm. I get to that. I understand it. Not through therapy necessarily, although therapy sometimes is helpful. If it's a trauma-induced paradigm, therapy can be helpful. But if it's 
it's a culturally repetition pattern paradigm you don't need therapy if it's a decision you made you may or may not need therapy but if it's a trauma-induced pattern therapy might be helpful so i don't need necessarily need therapy i might need it but what i will need is enough understanding of it that it loosens its grip on me yes because like you said in your book transforming behaviors requires spiritual and emotional excavation it requires deep work yeah yeah i think so enough deep work it depends on the nature of the paradigm and how deeply etched it is i mean my my arrogant paradigm i i have a fairly well-developed arrogant side it's probably it serves me to write books you know i I'm just confident enough and arrogant enough to believe that I should can write books and people. Will <laughs> well, I think you write great books. Your this book was amazing. I'm not going to throw out that arrogant hell. <laughs> I'm going to go. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Mom. I see the value of your the ways that you unconsciously parented me. I made some choices that I think have served me to some extent, but I'm going to also. So I need to understand that enough to honor it. And then I need to understand enough to know it belongs here at times in rare moments, but it doesn't belong my whole life because if I'm arrogant all over the place, uh, I'm going to be a pain in the ass to be with wherever I go. So so can I find its right place? That's part of the excavation. Yes. And can I find an alternative that fits the shape of who I want to become? Right, because we do want to create that balance. Some of these things do have value in our lives, like you said, but it's just about finding the balance and then also putting yourself in a position where you're open and growing. I like to remain in super position when I think about how I believe things. I may lean one way, but I always leave open a little bit of aperture for potential, yeah. you know, that it could be wrong. So, Well, I think you're... You know, I've here. I've gotten to know you for an hour. So, oh, it's been amazing. Um, uh, uh, you're you've clearly got a, a mind that's very curious. Absolutely. And with that, you meet me, or you meet other people, and you go, "Wow, that's interesting." That's and you you show what your enthusiasm with me. I'm sure it's not just with me. I'm sure it's with a lot of people, and and that shows a fertile, curious mind. That fertile, curious mind helps you break free of some of your old patterns. It's crucial. Some people don't have that. They have their comfortable pre-existing mind that likes to be exactly the way it's always done. They would not do a show like you, nor would they probably even watch a show like you, listen to a show like yours. But that curiosity is an essential ingredient toward the, the new paradigm. Yes. And, and Yes, and I like to also reflect the curious mind of my listeners who are attracted to this show because of the topics and the openness and that question. I have that curious mind, absolutely, but I'm also yeah. there as a conduit for those minds that are attracted to the show and want to learn from you directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a nice <clears throat> meeting of the minds. <laughs> okay, so then tell me about now metanoia. This is something you talk about in your book, and I've heard this term in the past related to Gnosticism and other spiritual things, but you talk about it in your book in a different way. Tell me about metanoia. Oh, got it. Okay, so I'm going to look up the Greek of it because I don't remember it uh, fully. So, you know, it is it is truly changing the mind. Yes. 
um, you know, in, 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 in Greek, I think it's a Greek word, uh, truly change in the mind. So we're back to the question that I can't answer. What the heck is the mind? <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, to truly change the mind, this is just as I was talking about your curiosity. This is the uh, an essential element of shifting a paradigm. It the mind it, 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 the 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 paradigm. Well, we haven't even talked about its features. The paradigm, a personal paradigm, in my estimation, it's made up of a beliefs, a set of beliefs about how the world works or doesn't work set of assumptions, a set of beliefs about what, how I work and what I'm capable or not capable of. It's uh, embedded in a paradigm as a set of goals. So, for example, my arrogant self paradigm, my goal is to look like I'm smart or be smart. Be smart. And I'm, you know, a study, study, study. And now that I'm smarter than I was before, I arrogantly portray it. I'm actually trying to get love and recognition from my arrogance, but it's a not a very effective way of getting it. But it fueled me to study and learn. So a goal, set of goals, set of assumptions, set of beliefs, and a set of needs. And one of the needs that fueled my arrogance was a need to be recognized. Why? My parents didn't recognize me much right. at all. They thought I was dumb and wrong and and there, it, it, I won't go into the story. There is a story in the book that's meaningful here. But but you see the point. It's made up of all those elements. They all conspire to create a strategy, that my strategy of arrogance. I'm going to tell people when they're wrong. I'm going to be right. I'm going to show them the flaw of their ways. That's the strategy of the arrogant self. It's fueled by the beliefs, the goals, and the needs. From that strategy, I have lots of different ways I do it. One of the ways in which I point out the flaws of other people is I do it very quietly and very lovingly. You know, I wonder if you've ever thought of this before, Jake. I wonder, yeah, you might want to consider this. I think there's a potential, you know, some faulty reasoning. I don't know. You might want to look at, I'm just subtly inviting you to take a look at where you're wrong. And 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 so I have actions or, or or subtle strategies, I'm not very overt. I don't say things like, you idiot. <laughs> My strategies are far more kind and respectful because I don't want to piss people off. So I have these actions that are consistent with my strategies. My strategies are fueled by goals and my beliefs and assumptions. They, in turn, produce a set of outcomes. The outcome of my arrogance is study and learn and acquire knowledge. If I was an uh, athlete, I might be an arrogant athlete, a bully or a, uh, you know, just, just be bigger, stronger, faster, and better than others. I'm My arrogance is more an intellectual bully because I was, I had enough smarts that I could do that. I had enough, you know, gifted with a little bit of IQ. So, so the, what happened is I studied and I learned and I got better and I got a doctorate and I, you know, and I went to the Harvard University, the the, the bastion of, of education, all fueled by arrogance. Am I going to say that's a that's a damn shame that I got my doctor from Harvard? I don't think so. I'm going to I feel pretty good that I did it. 
But the totality of the paradigm is the outcome reinforces the belief that in order to be better, I have to be smarter. And here's here's what happened when I got my doctorate. My mother was there. When I received my diploma, she says, I'm proud of you. And I realized that's the first time in my life I've ever heard those words from her mouth. Oh, my God. And so I got the love that my arrogance wanted to find. And every now and then people say, gosh, Keith, you're really smart. And I go, oh, that feels so good to hear. (laughs) And so the outcome called recognition reinforces the paradigm. Now I'm in part of my life where I don't want to be living so arrogantly, and I don't. I have a high degree of humility. It may not have shown here in the call, but it's there somewhere to be found. And 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 so I don't want it to be the whole of my life. And somewhere 40 years ago, I realized the pattern and I started to try to change it. But it took a lot to do it. Right. And then again, that is the identification process, which is so important. But the metanoia, the change my mind, I ch- it was literally to change from arrogance to something else. Yeah. Yes. And spiritually, people talk about how metanoia relates to understanding your own personal divinity. The know thyself axiom is one example, but just understanding that you are a light being, you're living light in a physical body. And yeah. that understanding, when you integrate that paradigm, when you understand that is a beautiful metanoia, yeah. that that's what I have always understood metanoia to be, but also you're saying it's changing the mind as well in a general sense. I don't know. You know, I, I'm not a, a expert. I do refer to it, but, but to me, to change from, I'm using again, myself as an example, but sure. change from arrogant driven guy who's a know-it-all just like my father and my mother, you know, to somebody who's able to connect and love and 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 see the beauty of the world, that's a change of paradigm hugely. And the opening to the world, to its beauty, and to opening to the mystery, from arrogance to open to mystery, that is a metanoia. That was metanoia at its most profound. So I think metanoia for a lot of people and for me is opening to spirit. Wow. That's really powerful because there is a desire for change there. People do have that desire. And also you point out in your book that people are the creators of their own boxes. I think that's what we're talking about here because these paradigms, not only are they culturally or familial, they're also personal and they can be changed by us. Now that is one aspect and then forgiveness Self-forgiveness, that must be a huge component into changing certain paradigms, being able to forgive yourself for the actions that you would not do now as a developed person. Yeah, so I think this is important to understand as it relates to paradigm change. So maybe this is an easy way to understand it. If I come at you and I judge you, and I say, you're bad, you're wrong, you're awful, you're whatever, and I'm just judging you, uh, I'm being critical of you, what is your body and your mind likely to do? Is your mind likely to open up and go, well, thank you so much for your judgment, I need it, or are you likely to shut down? 
Most people recoil, shut down, they go inward. Absolutely, and and go as far away from me as possible. (laughs) All right, so think about our mind as having, or ourselves, our personality, or having many different parts. And one part is the inner critic. And the inner critic says to other parts of me, you're bad, you're wrong, you're terrible. Now, if I if my part is, let's say it's the wounded child, or it's it's a you know a part of me that is scared, and my inner critic says to my scared part, "Stop being scared! You shouldn't be scared. You're a crybaby. You're silly. Stop being scared." Just like you recoiling from me if I'm judgmental, that little tender, wounded, young part isn't going to go, thank you, inner critic, for showing the way. It's just going to go underground and and be hard to access, hard to see. So the process of examining a paradigm needs to be a loving, gentle, not aggressive, I'm going to get rid of this bad part because it's awful and bad. As soon as I say it's bad and awful and critical, it will recoil and it will go underground and I won't be able to see it nearly as clearly because it's afraid of my own inner judgment. This is how we get blind spots. Like um, if I, if I, you, you can use my arrogance. It, let's say I'm an ar- the arrogant part of me. If a judger in me goes, you should be arrogant, you should be arrogant, you should be arrogant, which it did for a long time. I go, okay, I'm not going to show my arrogance. I'm not going to let it be seen by anybody, including myself. I'm going to hide it. Well, so it goes underground, and now I can't see it. Whereas a healthy orientation, I believe, to paradigm change would be that I can see it, that it shows up, and I can go, there it is. Ah, I understand that arrogant part of me. I understand how it came. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with the part of me that developed the arrogance in the first place. So they stopping judging it is a critical element so that it can come out, be seen and examined, and then it loses its grip. It's no longer blind to me because I welcome it to be, to see it. And then when I welcome to see it, when it shows up, I kind of go, gosh, there it is. I'm so sorry, Jake. You know, I think that was a little arrogant there. I, I know that part of me. Uh, it's not all of who I am, but I can see I was arrogant with you and please forgive me. Well, that's and, the thing. I think people have problems with self-love. Yeah. If they, if they don't, if they can't find self-love, it's going to be very hard to shift their self-love of, of that paradigm. It's going to be very hard to shift it. If we hate it, despise it, judge it, it's just going to go underground. Just like you would go underground away from me. If I judged you and I hated you. Right. So we need to approach it with the love frequency, that energy, that negativity, it just repels it. But then how do we dismiss our inner critic? How do we love right. it? So, so, so here, here's the irony. So let's love the inner critic too. Let's not go <laughs> inner critic bad. Inner critic is helpful. Inner critic help me and you get better at things and you know, help you go, wait, I didn't do that well. I'm going to get better at it. Yes. But when the inner critic is so raging that it pummels you, then we've got to address the inner critic. So I would treat the inner critic as a paradigm. If it's that raging, we got to get there first 
learn to quiet it down and love it, learn to be uh, uh, have it find its rightful place uh, so that self-love can eke in enough that they can do work whatever power they want to work. So people with raging inner critics, they can't change the thing that they want to change until that inner critic quiets down. So I work that. You know, for months or a year, we work on the raging inner critic as a paradigm. Wow. We, it finds a quieter place. It gets replaced by with some self-love and self-appreciation for how it formed and how we formed. And then the more loving we are toward ourselves, the more easy it is to examine these things. Uh, and, and that, yeah, you get it. Yes, absolutely. And I'm hoping our listeners get it. We've had such an incredible conversation. This is the information that people need in order to change the world, in order to create the world that we want. We have to change ourselves. The only part of the universe that we have complete control over is ourselves. We can't well, we have some semblance of control yeah. over. I don't know if we have complete. Uh, ask the philosophers who, who talk about free will and it, it doesn't exist. I actually think there is some free will. Yes. Uh, and, and, and I don't know if it's control. We have more control over that than anything else. Exactly. And, and so, so it, if you trust that and you believe it and you have a fertile mind, a fertile curiosity, you can change just about any pattern inside of you. And when we change the patterns inside ourselves, because we're all one, because it's all energy and we're all interconnected, that reflects out into the macrocosm and the macrocosm shifts, the frequency shifts. We're becoming healed. When you heal, we heal. Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly believe that. Um, <laughs> And that's a paradigm too, but it's a paradigm I'm willing to hold on to. And <laughs> so I like that. Of all the belief systems I might want to adopt, I think that's a good one. I'm going to stick with it. All right. What an incredible conversation we've had. It's just going so good. We've talked about so many loving high frequency things. So I do want to tell people before we go where to find you. Okay. Right away, you can go to leadership dash pathways.com and that is keith's website you can find him there you can find his books including the one we're talking about today which is his most recent book the art of transformational coaching a guidebook for helping others to heal and transform and we didn't really talk about this too much but again this book is for life coaches for people that are out there influencing people it's for everyone but the life I think coaches. It's, it's it's for everybody in the helping professions. Yes. And if you're somebody who wants to help another person shift something, then if you want to help them, you're better off helping them with an understanding of paradigm. So yeah, absolutely. It's and it helps you take your coaching to the next level because Again, when you're understanding this as an individual, you can teach it, you can reflect it back out. And then of course the world changes. I've often heard you only need to be a couple steps ahead of someone to teach them. So you're out there teaching. It's okay to learn more, to expand your teaching. And there are other books that Dr. Keith Marin has wrote, Inner Freedom, Living Authentically, The Life You Were Truly Meant to Live, Consulting Mastery how the best make the biggest difference, the golden flame, unlocking the heart and soul of remarkable leadership, 
riding the wave, designing your organization's architecture for enduring success, and gender intelligence, breakthrough strategies for increasing diversity and improving your bottom line. All on Amazon, all amazing books, I'm sure. So if you're interested, if you're attracted to this, go check out these books. Check out the website, leadership-pathways.com. And Dr. Marin, my God, what a conversation. I really think we chipped away at the tip of the iceberg of helping people understand how paradigms affect their lives. It's been really amazing. I, I thoroughly enjoyed and and Jake, your your enthusiasm, your curiosity is uh, delightful to be a part of. I feel honored. I feel appreciated, and I it was a joy. Real, oh, thank real you. Joy. Well, I have a genuine love for all humanity, and I truly want us to evolve to a place where we are all together in love with each other, and remembering again that we're light beings in physical bodies, and no matter how we show up on this planet our ancestry, our age, our gender, however we show up in the physical sense, the one thing that unites everyone in the entire world is the fact that we are living light. We're truly light beings. And that's what I'd like to help people understand. So I'm glad you're picking up on that. And before we go, is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with? You know, we have consistent listeners, thousands, tens of thousands in 87 countries and 171 total. Is there anything you'd like to leave our worldwide audience with? You know, I think what you said uh, leaves 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 them in a in a beautiful place. That you know, well, actually, this yeah, there there is something. The path of paradigm shave, uh, paradigm shifting, and transformation is a natural path toward our light. That yes. that it is it is um, as we continue to examine, follow the steps in the book. And there are other books too that will give us uh, meaningful guidance. But as as we go toward that, it is a path toward more expansiveness. It is a path toward love. It's it's Maslow's you know hierarchy. It is a path toward self actualization. And so the more we continue to examine and look and wonder and you know it the what's the what's the net outcome? That's more love. Yes. More oh my God. And with each other. Yeah. What a beautiful thought. Thank what you. else would you want? <laughs> hey, it seems like that's why we're here to activate love. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Keith Mayer, for being here. It's been an amazing discussion. My pleasure. Thank you. Everyone, my God, what an episode. Again, check out his books, check out his website, and we will see you next week. Midnight on Earth.